Oh, hi, donkeys. Let's see. It is Friday, April 17th, 2020. My name is Luke Thomas, and this is episode 29 of the Luke Thomas live chat. I hope you are doing well. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I'm the host of the Luke Thomas show on Sirius XM uh, channel 156, Monday to Friday. Information in the description box. One half of Morning Combat for Showtime. Information in the description box. And this is my personal live chat where I just talk back and forth with you in sort of a weird and non-obvious way. But you guys know the drill. I answer your questions and uh, all that good stuff. So without further ado, let's get this party started, shall we? All right. A um, couple of housekeeping notes. First of all, thank you so much for joining me. I greatly appreciate it. Uh, as you know, I need you to subscribe. Do that right now. You can, of course, like the video as well. Thumbs up on it. And I need you to donate. Uh, as you may have, or may not, if you're new, you will not have known this, or maybe you forgot. I am doing uh, all the donations this month are going to charity, plus the live video I did where I did not take donations. The ad rev for that will go as well. If you would like to know what the running total is, I have one for you. We are sitting at about $1,500 right now. So we have this live chat. And then we have, I think, maybe one or two more, and we'll put it all together. The goal, I think, would, would like to be 2000 If you'd like to know the charity, I finally have one. I was really trying to decide about which direction I would go. How do we get the most bang for the buck if we're going to be donating about 1000 or $2,000? And the answer I think I've come to is I'm going to be donating to the Capital Area Food Bank. You can find out more information at Capital. It's no O's, but just A's. C-A-P-I-T-A-L. CapitalAreaFoodBank.org. Um, they believe that if you donate $1,000, that can create up to 2,500 meals for people who are in need, families. Um, and if we had $2,000, it's about 5,000 meals. Now, I don't present that to you to be the most gracious donation ever, but I feel like I can stretch that 2000 if we can get that high, a little bit further along. So... That is where I'm donating. Of course, you can donate right to them instead if you prefer. Um, but I was hoping to get it all together as one group, uh, make a video about it, and um, um, just hopefully have an impact here. Uh, I'm trying to think about you know who would be most in need. Obviously, people need, in the medical field, um, protective gear. But with people being laid off and going hungry and there being some food insecurity in certain parts of the country and certainly in my own community, this is where I'm donating, okay? Capital Area Food Bank. So once we get through all of this month's live chats, we'll donate all the food. My goal is two grand, and of course, I will be donating on top of that. So I think we'll reach the two grand, no problem, but I would still just encourage you, please, that is where all the money is going to go um, from, from all the donations this month, yeah? Okay, so... With that out of the way, let us get to your questions. As you know, I put up a, Stephen A. He actually has done some... My little stupid voice there. I put up a live thread um, about 24 hours ahead of time and let you guys comment on it, and we will usually go from there. All right? With that in mind, let's have some delicious and intestine-destroying Coke Zero. All right. Let's do this. Uh, David asks, can you talk about your personal martial arts journey? I know you've mentioned you're, <laughs> you're a red belt in BJJ. I'm definitely not. Uh, that's above black. 
And also that you stopped training due to injuries, sort of, yes. Uh, yes, that's true. But would be interested to hear more about your personal journey. I mean, I've gone over this a million times. Um, didn't really get into it until the Marine Corps. And uh, even then, that, wasn't, that was just sort of a taste. Got out, 2004. Found a gym near me. Really began to train there. Uh, on and off there. Switched to another one in Northern Virginia. And then switched to a third one in D.C. Sort of taking intermittent breaks in between. All in all, about a decade of training, more or less, predominantly in the ground, but sort of everywhere uh, as well. Um, and uh, that's that's about the long and short of it. I've got about a decade spent in gyms in my area, trying to learn how to beat people up. Nothing, nothing, nothing too special other than the length of time. And yeah, I sort of stopped because I just got tired of feeling awful all the time. Uh, okay. With Alex Pereira rumored to be making his MMA debut in the near future, how do you think he fares in the UFC? I saw that this was uh, widely shot down, that it's actually not going to happen. Poetan, I think is his name. It's funny, I was covering him for Glory's Last Man Standing when he was considered to be good, but not especially great. And then he just got a lot better, man. He got way, way better. Uh, and it became Glory's first uh, champ champ. First of all, the, the, the rumor was shut down, as far as I know. And number two... How would he fare in the UFC without any real knowledge of the rest of the parts of his game? Um, not well. You know, obviously he can strike his balls off. He's incredible at that. He gave lots of people lots of problems. Uh, but by itself, as we all know, in modern MMA, that's usually not enough. So without having seen a whole lot other... I mean, I think he has some MMA fights from a while ago. If I think that's right, right? Um, let's see, just to be on the safe side here. I believe that is correct. And... Uh, yeah, he's got three MMA fights from 2016. I'd have to go and look at him. Obviously, he lost one via submission to a guy with no Wikipedia entry, and then won two, all of them in jungle fight. I'd have to go see. But, you know, obviously, he's had some amazing wins. I mean, this dude's just beaten all kinds of dudes. Jason Wilness, Simon Marcus. Simon Marcus was so bricked up in person. Good Lord. Um, I was, was that, no, I was not at the Koshenko fight. What fight was I at that I saw where he got, he got whooped? Um, you know, the Artem Levin fight, but he didn't get whooped. It went to a decision, but Artem was just better. Um, but yeah, he's obviously extremely talented, super, super talented, but I would need to see more. And again, not just more in the sense of, oh, he used his ground game in a fight. You need to see him use it against somebody who's good. Right, or has some reason to believe that what they show you there is reflective of what they could do at the highest level. I just don't think we've seen that yet. What's the deal with Jed Mishu at MMA Fighting? Calls himself Doctor. <laughs> has a law degree, supposedly. He does. I know. I can confirm he does have one. He is, he is a licensed attorney. Yet everyone seems to hate him. <laughs> First of all, I don't think everyone seems to hate him. He is, uh, how do I say this? He is unapologetic about his views, right? Um, and a lot of it is him just sort of being very assertive with his opinions. I've gotten drunk with Jed Mishu before in New York City. Uh, he's very nice. He's very bright. He loves Georgia, which I, well, that part I will hold against him. But, um, you know, he just issues a lot of very certain opinions online. He doesn't tolerate fools gladly, and that makes a lot of people angry. But he does, in fact, have a law degree. He is very intelligent. It's just uh, that kind of persona is not going to be for everybody. 
which I think you would admit. And so in the end, you sort of get what you get. But like, you know, are, are people talking shit about him on a forum or something? I don't think he cares too much about that. What is the most excited you've been for a fight since you started following MMA? Anything comparable to the anticipation of Khabib versus Tony? Yeah. Uh, the rematch between St. Pierre and Penn. It was at UFC 94. Boy, that was big doings. Because if you recall, that was when UFC had... Remember, UFC was still doing it in the Fox era. They had that show called Primetime. Do you guys remember this? This was like their answer to 24-7, where it was like shot on a Thursday, edited on a Thursday night. It was like the original Embedded, but it was made as a TV show. It would be shot and then turned around in 24 hours, something very, very quick. And they saved it for the very biggest fights. And this is when Penn was carrying rocks and then walking along the bottom of the ocean, you know. And I think he was, I think he was still with the Marinovich brothers then. In the end, the fight ended up being a bit of a wipeout. Um, there was some controversy afterwards. Penn made that famous greasing video, but the results were, you know, it was a little on the one-sided side. Whereas the first time, I thought Penn actually won that fight, even though he didn't. Uh, I thought he deserved to win, but that one because Penn, remember the circumstance, if I'm not mistaken, right? Penn, remember, he had already, let's see, let me set up the timeline for this very quickly. I always forget in, in, in retrospect. So let's see. He had lost to Penn via split decision at UFC 58. That was like USA versus Canada. I thought he deserved to win it. Then he fights Matt Hughes on short notice, I think at UFC 63, splits his ribs, loses. Comes back on the Ultimate Fighter 5, ran over Jens Pulver, bloodied up Joe Stevenson in the worst kind of way, and then demolished Sean Shirk and then headed into the St. Pierre fight. And you were thinking to yourself, wow, this dude, you know, okay, he lost to Penn in his last outing. Excuse me, he lost to Hughes in his last uh, welterweight outing. But, you know, it was up a weight class. It was kind of short notice-ish. Uh, I remember him saying there used to be a big site called Inside Fights. And I remember he did an interview with Inside Fights, and he was like, yeah, I'm just going to surf to prep for this. I've already beaten Matt once. I don't need to do anything else again. I was thinking to myself, Ooh, that is a degree of confidence I've never understood from uh, having, but um, okay. In any event, and he was beating he was beating Matt up pretty good in most for most of that fight, and then tried to do an octopus guard to uh, take the back and split his ribs, and then kind of gassed from there. And then, again, I thought, I thought he straight up beat St. Pierre the first time. So you could make a case. It was like, this dude is still one of the very best upper weight class, maybe. And then St. Pierre wiped them. And the the timeline between them were, that was three years almost. Uh, almost three years. Uh, almost four years, actually. Almost four years between them. Wow, UFC 58 and UFC 94 is almost five, four years between them. So that one was big. Because that was like, I remember the first time we were, not the first time, but it was the first time in a long There was, both guys had a, a legitimate claim to being certainly, the best in their weight classes because hello Penn was the champion at the time at, at lightweight and uh St. Pierre was the welterweight champion I believe so I believe they both had belts on on the posters and so you thought like this was the fight to determine who was the best in the world I mean that's what it was that's what you thought it was about and the UFC going all in on the programming and creating this like really special you know timeline for um the 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 prime time series and that was the big one that was a really really big one for sure um let's see 
Now, obviously, Khabib versus Tony is different because they've tried to make it five times now. There's nothing like that. There's nothing where... I mean, we, this is it's so unique what's happened with that fight. But in terms of just raw excitement, that was a really big one. A really big one. Why is the prime for MMA fighters so much later than other sports? It's perceived that the prime is around 28-32-ish. It's younger than that for uh, tennis, usually. Others, and, and certainly for, uh, well, soccer, that's about right, I guess. That can also be a little bit old for soccer, but okay. Other sports such as hockey, for example, a prime is the players 23-26. Would love to get your thoughts. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, a couple of reasons. One, you get a lot of athletes who are matriculating over from another career, right? So they're getting into it a little bit later anyway. They're starting and finishing later. I think the other part is you're not allowed to do this professionally until you're 18, if you've been playing hockey or American football or soccer or anything, if you want to play at the highest level, you have to start playing in your single-digit ages. And, of course, you can do other things in the single digits. Uh, you can do jiu-jitsu. You can do, I think, some wrestling. There might be some limited boxing you can do. I'm not entirely certain about that. Um, you can do some, obviously, in your teenage years before 18. But it, you're just everything is pushed later as a consequence. Like, if you could start fighting... In your as a kid, and then through your teenage years, you'd be done very early, right? Because they don't last long. <laughs> the careers don't last for the most part. They don't last long. They are very short windows. But because they get started a little bit later, they finish a little bit later, and that's true not merely from people coming from other sports, but the very fact that you can't even legally fight until you're 18 now didn't used to be the case, but now it just delays everything. And so when you can't really get that developed, and it's not merely that you're starting at 18. Remember, part of developmental growth as a technician happens by virtue of competition. You actually have to get the fights under your belt to get better. And so it just delays everything. Also, the last thing I'd say about this is, obviously having your wits about you, being athletic, they have major implications for how well you will do, will do in MMA. But I've often said this, there's another degree of talent, maybe innate ability is a better word, that goes into fighting that has nothing to do with athletic ability. Like you have to, like Robbie Lawler is athletic, but he's also got a little something else there. I think I've talked about it before, the call to violence. I mean, you have to be able to tolerate certain things being done to you and you have to tolerate, you have to be willing to hurt other people. And people think that that's like a natural thing. I mean, consider Anthony Smith. Dude's had a million MMA fights, gets a home intruder, and he beat that guy to a pulp, to be sure. But there are a lot of people being like, why didn't you just choke him out? Why didn't you just do this? Dude, because he'd never been in that situation before. He was just reacting in real time, and he had no time to prep. I get it just happened in the middle of the night. But the point being is, while he was able to answer the call to violence in particular, it was it was not well-constructed. It was, it was just, let's throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. Everything he's been trying not to do as a professional fighter on the other side of things. So it really becomes quite interesting, right? Like it, you, ha you have to be able to, um, there's a certain, um, there's a certain, even a willingness, even a willingness is not the best way to describe it. It's a certain willingness to, yes, engage in these practices, but it's a certain tolerance of them. It's a certain comfortability, and uh, there's also a lot of people who are great athletes who don't have that in them. And there are people who are not necessarily as good of an athlete who have no problems with that. And that's going to make that athleticism 
uh, all very beneficial, incredibly beneficial, but not as purely beneficial as it might be for something like soccer, where there is obviously head contact and brain trauma in its own way, but obviously it's not that it doesn't demand of you the same thing that fist fighting does in that way. Uh, out of these fighters, Nick Diaz, GSP, and Dan Hardy, who do you see making a return to the octagon? Who would you match them up with? Well, Nick, no. GSP, unlikely. I'll say Dan Hardy. And I always thought Dan's... I've been talking to this to about... I've been talking to Dan about this for years at this point. I even asked him, and I did the uh, UFC 244 pre-fight party. Dan and I hosted it for SiriusXM. And I even asked them there. I'm like, bro, when are you coming back? He's like, just waiting for the right time, waiting for the right time, you know? He wants someone who's got a bit of a name. He just doesn't want to compete against somebody who's really good, who could beat the shit out of him, and then there's no real benefit to it. If he's, if he's going to, I don't think he's thinking of it, if he's going to lose, but the way he has phrased it to me is, if he's going to risk it, it should be against somebody with a bit of a name. I think a Pettis, a Cerrone, something like that. Somebody who's in a relatively similar position. Now, he's been out for a while, but you know, a little bit longer in the tooth, got a bit of an established name, known to fans. I just don't think he wants to, you know, I don't think he wants to do a ton of it. And if he's going to do it, he, I think he wants it in a way where, um, you know, he's got somebody he can look all across the octagon against and know that the fans recognize them as much as he does. Did you go to college before you were in the Marine Corps? And why did you choose to enlist instead of becoming an officer? What did you would you make the same decision enlist versus officer if you could go back and do it again? Yeah, I would. Um, I mean, they're both at the same time technically, right? So I was in I was seventeen when I technically joined, but I had a year of high school left. The reason why you do that is because if you do, they count that towards the end of your enlistment. Every enlistment is for eight years. Um, you can do it two and six, four and four. Most are always four and four. You can do six and two. I had to do six and two to get uh, GI Bill money. So if you do four and four, maybe the rules have changed since then. But when I did it, if you did four and four, you did not get GI Bill money. If you did six and two, so six where you are in uniform, the whole nine yards, and then two where you're called inactive ready reserve, where you're basically out unless there's some kind of crazy emergency. Um, uh, I had to, do, I did that, and so I got GI Bill money for the time that I needed it for the four years I was in college. Um, but I joined when I was seventeen, so that means I only had to do six and one during my enlistment, because I had done one year previously, technically through high school, sort of a way to get you to join. They kind of wave a year, basically. And um, in any event, which apparently I say all the time, it's true, I do. Uh, so I joined. So I went. I graduated high school on a Friday. I went to boot camp on a Monday for processing. And then I graduated, I think, I want to say August 28th, 1998. And then that day, which I think was a Friday... I think that's right. Uh, my dad picked me up, and we drove right from Paris Island, Cali or California, Paris Island, South Carolina, all the way up the coast to uh, Williamsburg, Virginia. And then I went right to, and I had missed two weeks of college at that point already, because everyone had started earlier. Um, and uh, yeah, so then I did it all through college, and then I had two more years after I got out, and and that was that. So why didn't I do officer? Because that is a much more of a career track. I would have had to give him four years after college. Marine Corps does not have ROTC. I was able to get mine done concurrently with college. So I only had two more years when I was done. Plus, I did not want to make a career out of the military. I just wanted to do it and then, you know, check it off the box and kind of go on and do something else afterwards. Uh, what's up, Luke? The NFL recently came out with their all-decade teams. 
over the 2010s? Who would be the top 10 fighters of the past decade? Didn't we do this already? Not just graded on performance, but importance to the sport. There's a million of these that came out when the year turned 2020, right around, um, even though it's nominal versus ordinal years, which I won't get back into, but uh, there's a million of these lists. I just go, just go look at them. I mean, obviously the king of the 2010s is John Jones, right? I mean, there's just no, who else did more in that decade in terms of resume than him? And I know what everyone's going to say, oh, what about this, that, and the other? What about him, dude? You know, wins and losses, that dude. That dude was by far the very best fighter that we had during that period. Um, but there was, a, you know, a lot of great other ones as well. I mean, look here. Let's just pull it up. We'll pull up one here. Fighter of the decade. MMA. Twenty tens. All right. So you go through this. Here's MMA junkies. Fighter of the decade. Right. Number ten. They have Max Holloway. Nine, Jose Aldo. Eight, Nurmagomedov. Seven, Rousey. Six, Amanda Nunes. Five, Conor McGregor. Four, St. Pierre. Three, Cormier. Two, Demetrius. And one, John Jones. In that time, you know, that's a pretty good list. I might quibble with certain pieces of placement here or there, but every website did one of these. Uh, I don't need to add to it, you know. Over the years, we have seen the New York Times and various other media outlets criticizing UFC and WWE for entering markets in Saudi Arabia, and you've alluded to cultural differences within MMA. So how would you solve the cultural differences with the Western world and traditional Muslim viewpoints? And has this been inflated even more due to Americans targeting of the Middle East? I'm not sure I understand the last part of that question. Yeah, I mean, this is a very difficult answer to come by. I don't think anyone's really kind of figured it out. First of all, it's not merely entering the Middle East and like, oh, let's just go enter the Middle East. They're entering the parts of the Middle East where they're essentially, they're not taking a bribe, it's all legal, but they are being offered, in the case of, let's say, uh, WWE or Eddie Hearn, matchroom boxing to bring Anthony Joshua in the rematch with Andy Ruiz. They're being offered, you know, tens of millions of dollars, right? It's not just some like desire for cultural outreach. They could be in Antarctica or Singapore or Japan if they were paying those kinds of money, that kind of monies. That's where they would go. It's got nothing to do with like, wow, we really should go see the world and bring the fights to all the people. Even even the Rumble in the Jungle uh, was sort of bankrolled by a dictator, right? Um, so you know, that'd be it's like, it's like anyone ever asked like why that fight was in Zaire? Because <laughs> the shit was bankrolled, bro. I mean, that's why. Um, by terrible people. So that's what's happening here. Um, how would you solve the cultural differences with the Western world and the traditional Muslim viewpoints? The first thing I'd say is this idea um, that there is a traditional Muslim viewpoint is a grotesque simplification. Same for the Western world as well. The menagerie of viewpoints and the menagerie of um, practices, social, political, practical, and otherwise very widely from Jeddah to Istanbul uh, to um, Tunis to all different kinds of places. Um, there is no such thing as the traditional uh, Muslim world. Now, if you mean like, you know, the Wahhabi version of it in Saudi Arabia, I don't think there is a reconciliation. I mean, they are, they are directly responsible for the greatest ongoing ethical horror in the world, which is the blockade of Yemen and more than just a blockade, essentially the destruction of it. Um, and, uh, 
you know, there's, I don't know, I don't know how you can say that what they're doing is laudable. I had a conversation about this with, with, um, Israel Adesanya, because I saw he had been an ambassador for some kind of goodwill program there and had gone over and I'd asked him like, do you feel any ethical considerations about it? And his answer was, yeah, of course. But he subscribed to the idea that, you know, if you want these markets to open up, you've got to go there and help open them up. Like that's the way you're going to get this kind of process going. And there's something to be said for, you know, ambassadors of modernization going to a place like how the Wahhabis practice, which is about as backward as it's going to get, and trying to kickstart them into the future. And apparently the younger ruling class there is somewhat open to that. I think that's a reasonable argument on some level. But I can tell you, I lived through the same debate about China. Now, China obviously does not practice, you know, Wahhabi Islam, but... Um, this was back when they were like a hardcore communist country before many of their market reforms. And the argument was always the same. It was like, you want China to become a, a democracy and really open up. Let's institute a series of market reforms. Let's welcome them into the community of nations through the marketplace. And that will have a carryover into democratic norms. And we have seen that that is absolutely not true at all, man. What it ended up doing was it, it, it really aided the Chinese economy. And then they just began exporting their communism which is why when they stuck a microphone in LeBron James's face about, uh, you know, the protests in Hong Kong, he's like, he's like, well, blah, blah. And then, you know, all these pundits on ESPN who complain and hector us about every domestic ill that, that we have, and maybe those complaints are by themselves are legitimate, then gets asked about, hey, you think it's like cool if the if the country of China uh, turns the Uyghur Muslims into slave labor, is that a cool thing? Well, they just do business differently over in, in China. It, it had the reverse effect of everything we thought. I mean, yes, it did open up their, their markets, okay. But the idea that that would ultimately translate into this burgeoning democracy, boy, that did not work at all, huh? It, it really backfired. So I don't really know what the answer is here. I'm, I have been... Um, if you had asked me five years ago, I would have said, yeah, let's go and do everything there. Let's open them up. But it has it has shown that the connectivity between these changes into a place that's more hospitable to all groups in a, in a democratic society does not necessarily happen just because you put boxing fights there or because you sell Maseratis or even let, on occasion, women drive cars. Like, it doesn't doesn't mean anything uh, for that. At least it, 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 there's reasons to believe that it won't. So, um, but you know, when you say, "Oh, the, the you know the Muslim world," it's like the traditional Muslim viewpoints. You know, you got to be you got to be very specific about what you mean by that. Because I've been to many a Muslim country, and they were very different. Some were the same, but they were all very different too. Always keep that in mind. Hi, Luke. Are you worried a potential vaccine could take longer considering Trump has suspended funding to the World Health Organization? No, not on that terms. I mean, the amount of private money going into, I realize that the World Health Organization ostensibly aids in that regard, but, um, and was it like 15% of their funding comes from the U.S.? Not great, but in and of itself, I don't know that that would make a, certainly it's beyond my pay grade, but um, I just know that there's a metric ton of, private medical attempts to advance the cause independent of the World Health Organization's leadership. Could the aftermath of the pandemic lead to a Cold War with China further decimating the economy? That is far above my pay grade, but I will tell you an article. I've been, um, 
So you guys watch Morning Combat I did mm, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, something like that, where BC and I did our breakdowns of like the top five things that are like, like help you get through the survival kit, I think, for the quarantine was what we had. And uh, the, he, had, uh, he had some fun recommendations. And one I gave that I know was nerdy and not fun, I cannot recommend it more highly. Let me pull it up here. I've been reading a lot. Uh, this was one I read yesterday. There's a lot of concerns about to what extent the uh, you could uh, all of the discussion about China in this country is about how they manipulate their numbers. All of which I believe I don't you know <laughs> I don't take their death numbers seriously at all. But if you just focus on that, you're missing how the rest of the world is talking about China, which is taking a leadership role. Uh, diplomatically through all of this. Anyway, where is the... Oh, it's called The Syllabus, The Politics of COVID-19. This dude, Evgeny... Mo... What is his fucking name that I always mess up his last name? He got torn up in a debate. Um, Morozov. Evgeny Morozov. Evgeny Morozov has this... He has this... Um, it's a Substack account. And he pulls together the very, 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 very best individual per day pieces of reading as it relates to the COVID outbreak on this can be on social tolls, class and labor, international implications, the future, capitalism, Anthropocene, uh, academic uh, considerations, public health, economy, public sphere, um, tech, the internet, democracy. These are all things he gets the very best in multiple languages every day and sends it right to your email box. And I've been reading about as much of that as I can. The question you ask is so beyond my pay grade, I couldn't even hazard an answer, nor will I. The one thing I can tell you is, in reading all of what other various experts have to say, and this is across multiple disciplines, they all seem to indicate that China's advanced leadership role and any kind of U.S. abandonment of the World Health Organization just allows room for China to swoop in. And that the, you know, the question is, does the future belong to them where they're leading the next global order? Again... I don't know. You'd have to ask different people much more capable of answering this than I. But I cannot recommend I cannot recommend more highly Evgeny Morozov's The Syllabus on COVID-19. You want to find the very best reading on this. You will not find it anyplace else. That's your number one go-to right there. I'll tweet it out after the show. You know what? I'll put it in the description box below as well. You are you are only misinforming yourself by not taking a look. Is there one technical mistake you see fighters make regularly which drives you crazy? I've talked about this is not so much as a mistake as it is a choice, which is they can be a mistake sometimes, but sometimes it's not really, not really that cleanly. The lack of a jab in MMA really bothers me sometimes. It's not nearly as much of a problem as it used to be with the lack of head movement. Lack of head movement used to be like common. Now it's not as much of a problem, but still that kind of thing kills me a little bit. Um, That's a technical mistake that drives me nuts. There's one thing, I don't know if I call it a mistake, but I see some people when they fight, they might win, they might lose. They might win more than they lose, even by a lot. But they don't do anything that makes you remember them. And here's what I mean. I don't mean that they didn't score even a knockout or a crazy sub. But if you looked at their game, you'd be like, there's nothing special about each individual part. 
and even putting it together is a good hole, but that it's even together is not a championship caliber one. Like so, for example, Simpier did a lot of things well, but you know, was he the best boxer you'd ever saw in your life? No. Best wrestler? No. Best jujitsu guy? No. He was very competent at those things, particularly for MMA. But individually, he was never going to win the Mundials. He was never going to qualify for the Olympic team. He was never going to become a WBC champion. Putting them together, however, he was good enough at all of them that that collective combination made him a super formidable challenge. I'm talking about something less than that, where you're good and you're, the, you're more than the sum of your parts, but even then you're not going to win any titles. I see a lot of that in MMA, this sort of like homogenous style where like I'm good enough to do well here, I'm good enough to do well there, I'm good enough to do well there. And then there's just nothing special about it. It's like, do I wonder if these fighters ever watch themselves and ask themselves, like, what is it that I do special? What is it that I do really differently? Because that is really what's going to matter here. And I don't know, all of this is easier said than done. Like, oh, I should just have a superpower. I don't mean to say that it's something you can just manufacture. But over time, if you really invest in developing a set of skills to, A, shore up your deficiencies, but B, set you apart a little bit. I don't see enough reflection on that. I don't see enough people looking around the game and being like, what's missing that I could add? I just see them saying, what do I need to keep up with? And those are different questions. Uh, how do you see COVID-19 affecting the future of the MMA media? Do you think many outlets will be forced to close down for good? Whew. Well, um, you saw with the news in Vox today. I'm told that that will have an effect on all the sites. More so um, contractors than uh, regular employees, but it's going to have an effect. So that will go for anyone at any of those sites. So Bad Left Hook, Mania, MMA Fighting. MMA Fighting has mostly full-time employees. Um, Bloody Elbow. Anyone whose contract there is uh, potentially on the chopping block is what I've been told. Uh, I don't work there anymore, obviously, so that could change. But my sources tell me that. Um, you know, I don't want to put out anyone else's business on the street, but there's another major MMA site that already had a series of, um, salary reductions and furloughs. Yeah, dude, I, I've, I've said it on this very podcast, I think a week or two or more ago, it's going to hit this industry hard, hard. There's going to be, I think what it's going to do is if you're not super entrenched and, um, you know, you know a little lucky or something, there's going to be, I think that the, I think that the outlets will survive, but how many people will survive to staff the outlets? I think that is going to be a significantly different equation. And uh, right now, the easiest ones to get rid of to save costs are the ones who have, you know, the least amount of um, connectivity to the audience or to the to the to the site, which is the contractors, right? But then after that, they'll start reducing if it keeps getting bad. They'll start reducing hours, salaries, furloughs. Um, yeah, that's for sure coming. How bad, that part I don't know. Uh, but um, yeah, dude, it's, and, and not just MMA media. Like Sports media is going to get absolutely crushed by this. I mean, there's no sports, and then there's no ad dollars. <laughs> it's bad, man. It's really, 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 really bad, you know? And I don't want to, let me just relitigate it for one, for 60 seconds, if I may. I'll try to keep this at 60 seconds. This is why I've really objected to the arguments about, like, this is just virtue signaling by the media to call for UFC 249. So, look, man, we can have a disagreement about that. Okay, fine, right? You think the media should or shouldn't be doing it? 
Okay, we can have a debate about that. But please, for the love of Jesus fucking Christ, can you not believe in such obvious bad faith bullshit as that? It's like, dude, what do you have to think that like professionals in this industry get like some kind of deep satisfaction from that while calling for things that undercut their viability? You think that they're that broken inside as people, and frankly, that juvenile, that this would be, I mean, that's what someone at 13 years old would do to their classmates because it's just a, you're so overcome by emotions you barely know how to manage them. So you manage them in quite literally a juvenile way. We're talking about professionals in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and older. You think this is a, some kind of fucking peacocking? I mean, it's just, if you want to have a debate about it, have a debate about it. Okay, fine, cool, no problem. But, you know, they called for their own demise. And I'm not asking you to applaud that. Again, if you disagree with it, then disagree with it. No one should applaud the MMA media for doing their job, right? Which is, in their particular sense, calling out what they saw was um, the truth of the industry and blah, blah, blah. But the last thing is, dude, afford them the courtesy of acting like people who aren't um, mentally incapacitated weirdos at scale, that's who would do that. Like somebody who had a mental problem, who needed to get some kind of online validation, uh, which does happen, of course, but, you know, calling for your own job that way, that seems weird. Uh, and, and, it's, and, and, and it's just a way, it's just a way to deflect the actual, it's a way to actually not have the debate, right? It's a way to just be like, oh, this is a bad faith posturing by the media. I don't have to take this seriously, rather than like listening to what the arguments would be. Okay, but enough of that. What fight? Oh, oh last on. Well, actually, I don't, I don't know. I'm not going to say anything more because I don't know how true it is. But uh, I'll just say this: um, everyone is going to get affected by this in media, but the ones who work at uh, ad-driven businesses are going to get affected first which is what you're seeing, but it's not going to spare anybody, I don't think. Which is to say that everyone's going to lose all their jobs. It's not what I'm saying either, but like, is everyone getting it through this without facing a furlough or a salary reduction or loss of staff or like, you know, I'm not saying everyone's going to lose their job. Of course, that'd be silly, but uh, yeah, dude, it's, 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 it is, it, the, the whirlwind has come and it's going to continue to be here for a while. What fight comes to mind that when a finish came, you were speechless or couldn't speak coherently for a good 10 seconds? Brock Lesnar beating um, Shane Carwin. It was a long time in the making in the sense that the fight had t the tide had turned. But this was a fight I had been looking forward to for so, for so long because Carwin was not necessarily the athlete that Lesnar was. Not many people are. But he had much more MMA experience and was a much better MMA fighter, at least in terms of skills on paper. And so you thought to yourself, hmm, this is interesting, right? How far can Lesnar go? And I had been looking forward to that fight. Not as much, other people not as much, but for me, I was very much looking forward to it. And I remember I was out of breath typing on Bloody Elbow, and after the fight was over, I didn't even smoke, but I needed a cigarette. I mean, that was, I was just like, you know, couldn't believe, couldn't believe. Uh, what's another one? Um, just like gobsmacked. Maybe when Rousey lost to Holm. That was a big one. Um, something like that. True or false? Hooker beats Poirier. I see that I'm less convinced by. 
Holloway wins back his belt at 145. Uh, so I'll say the, for the first one, false. Second one, Holloway wins his belt back. I mean, he could now that he's got some time off. So I'll say true. Uh, Masvidal fights Connor, false. Cormier retires as champ. God, who knows if these UFC shows are going to get going again. Um, I'll say false. I'll say false on that. But, you know, who the hell knows if these shows are going to be running again in some kind of way. And even then, like, how do these dudes look? And is Stipe going to defend it? Because he's out there. You know, Ohio's done a pretty good job of containing all of this. But, you know, he, he, he indicated this commitment to, like, make that his priority, this, you know, serving the public. And who the hell knows, man? Who the hell knows with that? Let's say in an alternate universe, Scott Coker runs the UFC after the Tough One finale. What does the UFC look like today? You know, it's a really interesting question because a lot of the choices that Scott Coker makes as promoters are often pivots away from the conventional strategy by UFC. So, for example, UFC went the way of Reebok. And it wasn't like, it wasn't like Scott Coker was not doing something the same before. It, he didn't change anything. But in terms of like, to the public, the pivot he had made and messaging was, oh, see, we don't do that here, right? They might do that there. We do that different things differently here. Um, Coker has, I think, though, the real difference between he and Dana White is, remember, Coker worked for K1 for a time. He is heavily influenced by the Japanese style of promotion. And also, he's a bit of like, I don't know if he feels, I don't know if you'd agree with this characterization, but he's sort of like a boxing promoter in MMA, so what do I mean by that? Two things. One, pomp and circumstance and grand, uh, you know, willing to play with ideas and doing tournaments and like an explicitly tournament-based style and these tournament shows. He's got a he's got an eye for that kind of a thing. And to what extent he's enabled to do that at Bellator or at Strikeforce is up for debate. But I think in a perfect world, and certainly if you had the UFC's resources, you'd see a little bit more of that, I think. Um, that'd be the first thing. Would fighter pay be as high as it is at Bellator and Strikeforce? Again, I think part of what they do is a reaction to what UFC does. Like, okay, Strikeforce isn't as big as UFC, but if we pay guys, you know, uh, a greater share of what we have to offer so we can match what they're doing or exceed it in certain cases, you know, we can get further along. Would he do that if he was part of the UFC? I don't know. But that Japanese influence is there. And the second part is, you know, dude, in Strikeforce, they don't always, they didn't always do this. And in Bellator, they don't always do this. But they do it enough where you notice it. They give people tune-ups. You know? They believe in kind of er not every fight that a guy takes needs to be his toughest fight every time out. Uh, even if he's been winning. You know, one of the arguments on Fedor against him was like, oh, well, Fedor fought a bunch of good guys. That's true. Fedor fought a bunch of scrubs. Dude, that was by design. That was by design because what Coker figured out was if you have a person and they're widely considered to be good or even great, let's say even a champion, and then for one fight you give them somebody they're just going to beat the living shit out of, on some level, a person might come by and say, wow, that really hurts their record because they could have been fighting X and instead they fought a much lesser Y. On the other hand, for the average fan, what ends up happening, and I've seen it play out, is they go, wow, look what this person can do. How great is this? It's sort of like, you think about MVP. He's got some nice wins in his career, um, but you know, not as many to uh, as you might think, given the hype around him. Um, 
but the hype around him is a function of the fact that you know they keep matching him up with guys where he can do MVP like shit. Coker kind of figured it out. It's like, all right, is he the best welterweight we have? No, that might be Douglas Lima. Um, yeah, definitely Douglas Lima. Uh, but if we give MVP these other guys, will he do MVP shit on them, which will end up on Sports Center or, or you know, going viral on Twitter? Yeah. So let's do that. Right? You just don't see that kind of a thing from Dana. He doesn't promote fighters um, exa- exactly the same way. And so you'd see a little bit more of that, probably. I mean, if, you know, again, once you operate as the industry leader versus the person playing against the industry leader, the equations about how you manage that talent and those resources and what you offer to the public, it changes. But if there's been a through line from Strike Force or K1 even to Strike Force to Bellator, it's been some of those influences. Would you ever consider doing a proper live Q&A as a booking out of a theater and selling tickets to us fans? Yes. Um, I've been dying to do that. That would That is my dream. That is my dream. My dream is, uh, you know, let's say there's a big UFC show in, I don't know, Chicago or something. Selling tickets and having you donk show up, doing a live podcast, maybe with Brian or somebody else. Uh, only media's. Maybe a fighter turned media guy, but not like active fighters. I don't give a shit about that. Um, well, I mean, not for that show. I, I care about that, but not for that show. But uh, and then taking a Q and A at the end, and like a long Q and A. Yeah, that is absolutely. That's the dream, man. You you give me that, and I have basically done everything I wanted to do in sports at that point. Hi, Luke. How do you see Cruz faring against Henry? It's such a great question. After being off again for so long. And Father Time um, also potentially being a massive factor. If Henry absolutely steamrolls him in the first, which is very possible, how does that affect his legacy as the Bantamweight King? Uh, also, you asked about Abdul Razak Al-Hassan. Yeah, he, uh, he, got, he was exonerated. But going back to Cruz, isn't that interesting? Because if you look at it, you're like, oh, he hasn't fought in three years or give or take, right? Let's say at least three, something like that. The Cody fight, which was December 2017. So if we get, yeah, so almost three years, right? Something like that. Or was it even 2016? When was that? I think that was December 2017. Let's see. That was 16. Jesus. Jesus, yeah, so almost three and a half years, wow, man, yeah, that's a long time, so if you look at that, you would say a couple of things, right, you would say, he's not even ranked in the top 15, hadn't fought in three plus years, right, you know, what can you really expect, 35 years old, on the other hand, you look at this, you go, wow, well, he was out for a while, how long was he out before the Mizugaki fight, three years, basically, right, Came back and beat the fuck out of Mizugaki. I mean, ran through him like a freight train uh, at UFC 178 in a minute and one second. I mean, and that was when Mizugaki was good. Then he fights Dillashaw, and that was controversial, but he was certainly like very at the very worst competitive with him um, in uh, January of 2016. And uh, and here he is again losing time, coming back. You know, three 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 plus years later or so. So, like, you've seen it where the dude has taken time off and come back 
and looked absolutely spectacular, or at least at the bare minimum at the highest level, you know, the general highest level of the sport. Except this time, it's you know even longer of a layoff. He's much older, and the division has rapidly matured. The other part about it is Cejudo only has one fight at bantamweight. Granted, it was a great one over a very good bantamweight fighter, no doubt about it. But he's got one one total fight in the bantamweight division. To me, I don't know what the hell to expect. I would not count out the guy who is known for being as about as bulletproof as somebody can be to um, ring rust. On the other hand, even if he beats Cejudo, we might find that, well, he ended up being a good matchup for him, but that Peter Yan could conceivably be a terrible matchup for him. Corey Sandhagen could conceivably be a terrible matchup for him. There's a lot of different ways where somebody just might not look that great against, uh, or might look really good against Cruz, and he might not look that great against them, which is to say... Um, he's good enough to still compete at the highest level, but he's clearly no longer the best at that point. I mean, there's all different ways this could go. Uh, My hunch is that he still probably would make it very competitive, maybe even win, but I'm not convinced. In fact, I'm pretty convinced he's not the best welterweight anymore. Excuse me, bantamweight anymore. Um, But he makes it interesting, does he not? He makes it very, very interesting. He'd be foolish. He'd be very foolish to count that guy out. Um, what happens to Tony if he beats, excuse me, the opposite. What happens to Tony if he loses to Justin? Is there a way for him to get back to Khabib? It seems that would be such a terrible way to end such a huge win streak. And I think it has every chance of happening. Yeah, I spoke to, uh, I'll put the interview out later um, this weekend. I spoke to Kevin Lee about it. He seemed to think that Tony would deserve to be the strong favorite there because he thought that, um, you know, for as much dancing as he does and how much the leg kicks might affect him from Gaethje, he thought that the reach of Tony and then the linear straight punches down the middle, and plus he hits hard, of Tony would make a bit of a difference and Tony's cardio is un- basically unbreakable. He thought that would be the big difference. But you're asking, forget all that, what happens if he does lose? I mean, you would never say never there's a, back, a path back to the title, but that would pretty much ruin it. I mean, the dude's 36. Um He's not young for that division at all. And if it was clear that the, there was a new set of contenders conceivably that was moving up ahead of him, at least one of them in the case of Gaethje, it would derail a lot of what he's built. Um, now, so you have to think about it rationally. So let's say he loses. Gaethje goes on, wins the title as a consequence with an interim one, and then fights Nurmagomedov. Maybe you could argue Tony has to win one and get back there because the UFC might just want to make it. right? They would, have, they would say, look, okay, look, Tony lost. Get one win, we'll just make Tony versus Khabib anyway. You know, that could that could happen. But if he gets you know just roughhoused, and he looks like time has caught up with him to a degree, and these are ifs, these are not declarations that they will. That could limit any enthusiasm. I mean, again, remember, so much of matchmaking is what the fans demand, and what the sport sort of leans on the UFC to do. And so the question is, what he would look like. In a loss, if it was controversial, I don't think it would derail it very much at all. If he got beat from pillar to post and you know viciously KO'd for the first time in his life, that would hurt him. That would hurt him very badly. Hi, Luke. My question is in regards to the UFC's desire to book a fight as soon as possible. With the many different options the company explored, one that was speculated was Chechnya. 
Do you think the UFC would go as far as doing a deal with Kadyrov to host an event with Khabib at the main event in Chechnya? Like Grozny? I doubt it, but... Maybe. I, I doubt it. I doubt it. That just seems like... Like... <laughs> if you took a bunch of money from Saudi Arabia... You know, first of all, other companies have done it now. The business there... Um, you're my daughter. Um, although Endeavor pulled out of business with Saudi Arabia. I, Saudi Arabia has a bit of this sort of controversial glow almost by virtue of how much money comes out of there and the fact that it's an oil-rich country with this sort of archaic, you know, uh, familial structure of, of royalty. and Chechnya is just a... I mean, I don't mean to demean it, but it doesn't have any of that allure or intrigue or, frankly, any of that kind of money either. So, I no, I, I would... And he's not also, you know... Kadyrov is a person that I think they tolerate to come to shows, but openly doing a show in conjunction with him would invite an unbelievable amount of scrutiny that they don't want. Uh, and, you know, he's not Chechen. Great, and no one, none, of them, none of them are, you know, from Dubai either, but the money talks there in that kind of a way. Luke, what are your thoughts on what should happen with European football team's conclusion to the season? It seems there is no fair outcome. I'm of the belief that you just make Liverpool the winner. I know that won't make people happy and they'll say, Oh, but they didn't finish the season. They didn't really compete in the way you're supposed to. And they didn't blah, 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 blah. Fine. You can disagree. That's just my, my view is if that's the season, then that's the season. Who is at the top? What is the, I mean, and by the way, aren't they up at like 20 something points? Yeah. What's the premier league table? Let's see here. I'll type in standings. I mean, bro, Liverpool is up by, oh my God, they're 82. Manchester City is at 57. I mean, it's not, <laughs> you know, I'm not sure. I'm not, uh, I haven't seen exactly how much more was available to them before they had locked it up mathematically, but probably not that much. You know, fucking just give it to Liverpool and call it a day. Greatest career, excuse me, greatest boxing career comeback. George Foreman regained the title at 45, or Tyson Fury's recent run bonus is GSP the greatest MMA comeback in history. I mean, his was a his wasn't a comeback. He wasn't like on the down and outs. He left on a win, took four years off, and then came back and won. It's not the same thing. Also, Foreman and Tyson Fury is so different. Like uh, Foreman fought until he was 28, then took a 10 year break, and came back at 38. Retired George Cooney along the way. And then he lost to Evander, but that was a very controversial match. Not controversial, but um, Foreman was very competitive. And then uh, he did lose to, um, uh, what's his face? Tommy, uh, uh, what's his face? Um, God, pull up his record now. Uh, I've forgotten his name. This will, Lack of sleep, well, boys and girls, it is not good for your brain. I have. I have learned that lesson. Uh, who did he lose to right before he won? 
Tommy Morrison, excuse me. He lost to Morrison, and then he goes and beats Michael Moore in the most improbable of circumstances. Um, you know, finishing him off in the 10th round, yeah, 94. But he had been competing pretty consistently. I mean, let me go through this. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he came back when he was 28 years old to 38. So from 87, he fought 1, 2, 3, 4. God damn. He thought he fought 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 times in 87. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. Are you fucking shitting me? Wait, wait, wait. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. Nine times he fought in 88. Are you shitting me? Old Foreman was a fucking dog, man. He fought one, two, three, four, five times in 89. He fought one, two, three, four, five times in 90. And he fought one, uh, two times in 91, one time in 92, twice in 93, and then once in 94, which was the more about. But the point being is, Jesus Christ, he fought in 1998 a lot. He'd been active the whole time. He was active the whole time. He was never like Tyson, you know, was off for a while after beating Klitschko, was down in the dumps and got sick and was drinking and drugs and the whole nine, and put on all that weight and then came back and had a fight where he should have won against um, Wilder. Had the other two wins. One was kind of close with the, with the, uh, the Valine fight with the cut, and then he comes back and beats Wilder again. Um, that was that wouldn't be the same run from twenty eight to thirty eight that. That he had, it, it was like this long, delayed process for Foreman. Whereas Fury was at the top, walked away, and almost got right back at it from the very get-go. You know, for more, more or less. Um, so they're they're very, very different. Amazing in their own way that just Foreman was, you know, could go out there and go beat the fuck out of people that late into his, you know, athletic career. Unbelievable. But Fury, a uh, bit, bit of a different scenario there. Look, what do you make of GSP's comments regarding the fallacy of being the best MMA fighter in the world at a particular weight class? His reasoning ultimately hanging on the idea that a champion status is an illusion and that one can beat two, two can beat three, and three can beat one on a given night. Yeah, that's a very, very bad argument from GSP. Do you subscribe to George's view or can we sensibly determine the best in the world and the GOAT by analyzing one's record? If, if what you had was a situation where he's right, on a given night, any of that can happen. On a given night, 10 can beat one. 100 can beat one. On a given night, the worst fighter in the world can beat the ostensible best. No, 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 you know, that's not an argument to suggest that one is not better than the other. I mean, listen, if you can reasonably determine um, that a fighter is better than another, it won't necessarily prove true that you can decide one is clearly the best. It doesn't necessarily mean that, but it doesn't preclude it either. Uh, and what that ends up looking like to get you to a place where you've decided one is clearly better than the rest, this is a difficult process by which to uh, exact and criteria to measure. It, it doesn't automatically happen. Uh, but the idea that, I mean, what George's argument is basically um, people are fallible, and so therefore that fallibility precludes titles of greatness. And that's clearly not true. That's not true at all. And it's especially not true in his case, because I think he actually is the best. Um, you know, Jones, we'll see what happens with him. But to this point, St. Pierre is just, un, you know, incredible, right? Um, 
So no, that's a very bad argument. I don't really, I don't, I don't buy into it. You, you have to give me a reason why people evaluating is hard. Ranking is hard and very disagreeable, right? Uh, I, I have this person five. Oh, they should be two. I have them seven. There's a little bit of that. Um, so, you know, there's a debate to be had, but the idea that you could never cobble together a case for an individual fighter having a clearly better record than their peers. Really? That doesn't seem right at all. Uh, now, that gets difficult if they're, they and their peers are very close. That also gets difficult over eras, right? Uh, we're talking about someone from Hoist's era versus the modern era. You're talking about almost two different sports at that point. I mean, very different sports at that point. Uh, that that begins to get things difficult. But if you're talking about sort of modern MMA, UFC 50 on up or something like that, um, you know, the ability to win titles in multiple weight classes, uh, the ability to not lose rounds, um, the relative difficulty of the division, the ability to dominate at length over time, you know, all of these things begin to tell you uh, um, that's, that people are better than their peers. So you can have a debate about who that might be. And if you want to say that there's not enough evidence to conclude that one is by virtue of all of their accomplishments are different in such a way as to make the comparison difficult because you're not comparing apples to apples. Okay. That's an argument. That's not the same thing as that's not the same thing as arguing because one can beat two and two can beat one and three can beat two and two can lose to four. That there is this slippery slope of the inability to examine uh, merit and greatness. That seems totally wrong. He's just being humble, y'all. <laughs> he's just Saint Pierre. I mean, I don't know if he believes he's the best or not, but here's what I do know: he's just being humble. He's just being humble. You know, that's who he is. He's a good dude. All right. Let's get to this here if we can. Uh, remember, I need you to subscribe because that's good for the channel. And I need you to donate so that at the end of this month, we can make a donation to the Capital Area Food Bank. Yeah? Okay. Very good. Okay, here we go. Can you headbang as well as Corpse Grinder? If you guys don't know, Corpse Grinder is the lead singer of Cannibal Corpse. I don't know who can. That dude looks like a thumb, man. His neck is the size of a fucking steering wheel. I mean, it's just ridiculous, that dude. He looks like Brian Erlacher, except if Brian Erlacher swallowed a sofa. Unbelievable, that dude's neck. Uh, wait, what do we have here? What are your thoughts on Shab giving a platform on his podcast to, this person's word, COVIDiots? Eddie Bravo and Dr. Drew to spew their nonsense about COVID-19. Uh, I've not seen them. Uh, Dr. Drew has already apologized. Eddie is Eddie. Yeah, I had a sit down with old Brendan. I'm waiting for the video to come out. We didn't like have it out exactly, but I definitely disagree with him pretty forcefully. Yeah, man, look, if I yell and I shout and I scream, I don't really convince anybody. So the best way to like um, try to convince people is to do it calmly through rational ideas and hope that that works. So, you know, the whole... Th I have, and I've lashed out like I'm, I'm a hypocrite here because I've done it because I just get frustrated at times. You know, I just can't believe that we have to have conversations that we have to have, but I can also admit they're not very effective. And I can also admit it's not, it's just a get, when you lash out at people like that, what I have found is that it's, it's very great at mobilizing people who already agree with you, but it also turns away people who potentially could be turned 
So, and I've, I'm, like I said, who's guilty of lashing out and pissing people off? I'm completely guilty about it, but I like Shab a lot, and I think he's very wrong on this, and I've told him that. And I don't in any way recommend having either of these gentlemen for those particular reasons on those programs. There might be other good reasons. Um, yeah, it's not a good use of his time. And I, and I told him to his face, I, uh, not about this particular one, but I really disagree with him. But, he, you know, y'all, every week, here's what happens. Every week, somebody asks a question about, like, something Brendan did that y'all want me to slam Brendan for. <laughs> You're wasting your time. Okay, I mean, I mean, yes, I will criticize him as needed or something like that. But, um, you know, I like Chael a lot. Chael's still out there running shows. You know, I, don't, I really disagree with that. But I like him. So what am I going to do? I'm going to yell at Chael? It's just gonna, and that's going to change his mind? All of a sudden, he's like, oh, yeah, fucking, this is not a great idea. It's just a way, it's not how you convince people. And again, I've fucked that up in so many ways on so many issues, but I can't keep making the same mistake. Where'd you get your used plates? Everywhere sold out or price gouging now. Where did I get them? Here, I can tell you, actually. Where did I get them? I got them. I got them. Uh, Fringe Sport had some cheap ones. Um, and I got some 45ers. Because I got 10s and I got 25s from Fringe. You were they used? Yes. No, they were they were they were new. I got used from where did I get it? I'm looking at all my I have to uh no. I I bought the thing from Kabuki Strength new as well. I have to look it up. But I got I got some cheap ones for they were new, but they were cheap for the smaller end from Fringe Sport. Fringe Sport had some good stuff, so shouts to Fringe Sport. For keeping them stocked. I have to go back and look. I don't want to waste any more. I'd have to, I'd have to find it. I'd have to find it. Uh, okay. Loved yesterday's lessons from Hidehiko Yoshida. Given that his background is Sambo, where they compete in the Gi, do you think Khabib could potentially benefit from fighting in a Gi in MMA? Well, yes, but especially if uh, the other person was wearing one. Yoshida, remember, the, the Kurtka is not nearly as long as the gi, like a gi can go down to like sort of top, even mid thigh, depending on how you wear it. And so you can pull it out and then you can wrap it around someone. It can, it can do a lot with it. You know, there's all kinds of chokes where you take someone else's gi, you open it and you run it under their armpit and then you grab it on the other side. There's all different kinds of ways you can do that. Um, I don't know if the Kurtka and Sambo allows that, which is to say that you've developed those techniques. I, I don't know enough about Sambo to say, um, but if someone else had it, Remember, what does that create? It creates a whole new set of handles. So you can grab behind the, you can grab the wrist, you can grab the elbow, you can grab the lapel, and then you can, or you can sucker drag them, which is my favorite one. The sucker drag is a great one. How competitive in a Muay Thai rules match would Tension Nascawa be if you fought Cyan Chai? That is far above my pay grade, boys and girls. I don't watch enough pure Muay Thai or Cyan Chai at this point to really. Give you a uh, Lawrence uh, Kenshin or Jack Slack would give you a much better answer. Brandon says thanks for the content. Thank you. Uh, Pranavan says thanks for the content. Thank you. Pick one of the activities. Luke Thomas's Nightmare Edition. New metal concert with Dana. <laughs> I always love when he's like, "Yeah, I like Rage Against the Machine." I'm like, 
Dana, do you, do you know what machine they're talking about? Uh, fist fight with Francis Ngannou. Fuck that. Or tip to tip with BC. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Well, I'm not going to do uh, tip to tip with BC because that's fucking weird. I mean, it is for two straight dudes anyway. If you're not straight, then it's fine. But if you're straight, that's weird. I ain't fist fighting Francis. So I guess new metal concert with Dana it is, buddy. Me and him can go to old Limp Biscuit reunion. Luke, can I be a guest on one of your podcasts? Probably not. Probably not. Uh, Ivory says, as a worker in D.C. area, I'm with you on this, Luke. Thank you, Ivory. Appreciate the donation. Uh, Nathan says, my opinion of Corey Sanhagen, who I didn't think I'd heard an interview done before, really skyrocketed after listening to yesterday's um, Luke Thomas Show podcast. What was your impression? Great choice of clarity. I found him to be very smart and level-headed. That video will go up this weekend. I recorded the whole thing. Um, he seemed very smart. I knew he was, but like this was a more than I more than I even thought, and I had a high opinion. He seemed really level-headed, understood the world around him, understood his place in it. Yeah, it was great. That'll come out this weekend. Do you think the May 9th UFC card will happen? Okay, well, I was very optimistic. Because I thought when Dana said, well, we're going to do events at the Apex you know, at some point in May and then for the foreseeable future, I thought he must have been clued in to like what the governor or the commission might have been telling him privately. And then the commission comes out, and this one was not that big a deal. They're like, yeah, no comment, no plans. But that doesn't necessarily mean a whole lot. But then Steve Sisolak comes out and goes, yeah, bitches, we ain't doing shit anytime soon. And I was like, well, uh, okay then. <laughs> I suppose that changes things. So, you know, Florida's wide open, but Florida has, I mean, dude, you see Florida's opening, their, did I see this right? Florida's opening their beaches today. Oh, Florida. Oh, Florida. Let me, let me make sure I verify that. Florida. Beaches, let's see. Some Florida beaches to reopen. What's the word here? Florida's governor on Friday gave the green light for some beaches and parks to reopen if it can be done safely. And North Florida beaches became among the first to allow beachgoers to return. Uh, Duval County beaches were reopening Friday afternoon with restricted hours. And it can be used only for walking, biking, hiking, fishing, running, swimming, and taking care of pets and surfing. So I guess you can't just like sit out there and get some sun. They'll be open 6 to 11 a.m. and 5 to 8 p.m. Gatherings of 50 or more people are prohibited, and people must still practice social distancing. Oh, Florida. Y'all are some... You think people are going to obey that fucking shit? <laughs> Florida, I mean, Florida is like, the, like a super shitty bootleg Australia. It's like all the venomous snakes, but way more meth. Happy to have a paying job and happy to help out with the DC Food Bank, says Joseph. Thank you, buddy. Appreciate that. You think he will? We will see Shevchenko Nunes three in twenty twenty one. Okay. Assuming that some kind of normalcy of schedule can resume by, let's say, Halloween ish. Yes, I do. You know, I'm not saying first fight by then. I'm saying like you know they got a kind of a rhythm going. Maybe, maybe. 
Uh, someone has some s terrible words here to say about Ariel. Y'all can read it on your own if you want. Uh, but thanks for the donation. I appreciate it. Um, here, another stupid comment from somebody, although I appreciate the donation. Wow, they gave 20 bucks for me to not read their comment. That was nice. All right. Uh, Luke, name two combat stars that you'd like to have dinner with. One alive and one who's passed. Who would you? Uh, what would you eat? All right, one that's passed. Simple, Muhammad Ali. One that's alive. Hmm. I guess Connor. You know, I mean, if we're just you know, private conversations where I can like really dig into the details. What would you eat? I gotta have. Uh, well, what would I eat? I've really tried to cut down on my consumption of uh, meat, so I would say I, I let it, let it go for that one. I'd probably have a steak. What are your thoughts on Dana being on the president's economic recovery team? <laughs> also, is there any chance you'd create a podcast on news and politics? Uh, what I might do is I might create a membership program for this channel, and then if you pay extra, if you want a like a non MMA podcast, I might do that. I'm thinking about that. We'll see. But uh, look, y'all. I'm not trying to piss off all the people who watch this who are big fans of President Trump. You all know how I feel about him. I wouldn't hire that motherfucker to catch dogs in the neighborhood. I do not find him to be a particularly competent um, adult. And so I don't, you know, I don't really trust any of his stewardship at this time. But, you know, people are going to have very different views on that. They're going to say I'm totally wrong. So, you know, that's that. Feedback on theory, women's 115, men's 155, men's 170 are the best because of higher population density, driving competitive skills. Most people are of those sizes. That could be a big factor. The other one is they don't get recruited to other sports necessarily um, at that size. I mean, some would, obviously, but if you're already combat inclined, there's also a self-selection bias there. But yes, that could be a big one. Um, this person donated 10 pounds. Can you unblock me from Twitter username 8palfrey8l? I refer to Real Madrid as Franco's boys. All right, well, because you donated to a food bank, I will do it. Here, let's do it now on the air. Let's see. This is the account doesn't exist. Oh, there it is. Yeah, you are blocked. That is true. All right. You are unblocked, sir. Thank you for your donation. I appreciate it. All right, we get back to it. Thoughts on Peter Yan's game is boxing and striking. What principles should boxers adopt for MMA striking? This is a much broader question, but I'd be happy to answer it with a future video. Did you ever work with Force Recon? Yes. Seals, no. Tips for selection? Better be in good fucking shape. The recon bubba's that we did some work with was very brief. It was at a CAX in 29 Palms, and we were just helping them with call for fire missions. They did not seem especially impressive at the time, but, you know, they were just learning something they didn't know, so everyone kind of comes across as an idiot like that. But they were all in good shape. So it says, thanks for all you do. Thank you, Ben. Can you make a vid on the CKB striking system? You know, I've been meaning to answer him. You know who reached out to me was Brad Riddell, Quake. Um, with his help, I would love to. 
if Magic Johnson cure for AIDS and all the broke people passed away, are you telling me if my grandma was in the NBA right now that she would be okay? Wait, what? <laughs> if Magic Johnson cure for AIDS, I'm reading how I wrote it. If Magic Johnson cure for AIDS and all the broke people passed away, are you telling me that if my grandma was in the NBA right now that she, does your grandma have AIDS? Does she have AIDS? What the hell is grandma doing? I don't know what you mean by this question, but thank you for the donation. Why do a lot of MMA fans only follow MMA and no other sports, generally speaking? Uh, this is from a diehard Arsenal fan. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know what the proportion is, but there are a lot of people who, like Joe Rogan's like this, like he doesn't watch sports. When I say sports, I mean like uh, football, basketball, that kind of a thing. They just like combat sports. Combat sports, like it involves exercise and it involves, you know, evaluating greatness and percentages this and trends that. And it, it involves like all of the same kind of t forms of conversation you would get in other sports. But it appeals to a kind of people where, like me, I like, I like virtually every kind of sport. Not every kind of sport, but I like a lot of sports. But there are people who are like the idea of watching a team sport is boring to them or they, they, they came to MMA because they like fighting not because they like sports. And this is why I always, I, I've said this before. I don't really think MMA is a sport. And what I mean by that is before everyone loses their shit, what I mean by that is if you take something that happens and you re recruit enough athletes and you put enough rules around it and you make training available to it and it becomes a for-profit business, at some point it just sort of becomes a sport. But I've said this, fighting is something that happens across not merely human communities, but the animal kingdom uh, and it does so for mating rights, territorial rights, adjudications of various disputes. It is something that happens in nature. We just took that and turned it into a for-profit enterprise. But fighting essentially, and best practices, but fighting is something that happens independent of that. And I think as a consequence, it recruits people who are not interested in gameplay. They're interested in fights, and they're not the same. We call it a sport, but it doesn't really mean the same thing when we call it a sport. When did you record the video with Brendan Schaub? And that was on Wednesday. I thought it'd be out already. I don't know where the hell this video is. And when will it be out? I do not know. That's a great question. Someone says, Luke, you're right then, you're right now. Well, thank you. Rico says, I work for Stryker in Michigan building hospital beds. We have hundreds of people working in a building. Do you think we should be getting hazard pay? I think so because we are definitely at risk. Yeah, fuck yeah, you should. Ashley says, who at Bantamweight is best suited to beat Cejudo? I told you guys this before. I had a very famous coach reach out to me, and he thinks the person to beat Cejudo is Sterling. Because Sterling has a long, rangy kind of stick-and-move style that make it really hard for Cejudo. And uh, Sandhagen's like that, too. I guess we'll have to see. I've got my eye on those two guys. But I also think that in-your-face style from Jan is going to give people fits. Oops, oops, oops. Know anything about Rogan testing his guests for COVID? No. What's the test? Could that open the door for a visit to the studio? I'd still avoid the travel. I did not know about that. He's testing his guests for COVID? Yeah, but the travel is the issue for me. When we, he, he, and I, he and I talked about it. I was like, dude, I just don't feel comfortable getting on a plane. Uh, uh, you know, nah, I still don't. But I'd have to look into that. I didn't know they were, they were being tested. 
Love the show, Luke. I'm joining the Army as a 13F Ford Observer Joint Fire Support Specialist. Any advice on doing well and excelling at my job? Yeah, so you're going to be on the hill, huh? Um, what do I recommend? Get good at reading maps. Get good at making fast mathematical equations. Um, learn your radio procedure. Um, yeah, just learn to have done the homework so that when you're called upon to use the work you've done, you can make quick decisions about it. Right, So you are required to make a series of fast decisions, but a lot of your map reading, enemy reading, and then what the charges should be, you know, seven red bag, enemy in the open, kind of, you know, tanks in the open, whatever. Well, you, I don't know if you do seven red bag for tanks, but okay, point being is you would know what the mathematical modeling would be ahead of time. And of course, as you guys know, the Russians invented modern artillery, so they have what's called a bracketing system, where you overshoot, then undershoot, then overshoot, then undershoot, and it's because it's an area weapon. Um, but if you've done all that math up front, you can make the adjustments relatively quickly. So just be really good about being, being very, very good map reading, very, very good about upfront homework. Have a prepared plan that you can deviate from, but you at least got a foundational plan upon which to make those conclusions. Someone said Liverpool were six points, two wins from a mathematical win, or just beating Man City with nine games left. Just give Liverpool the title. Come on. What fight is the best metaphor for Fauci versus Ingram? <laughs> I'm going to go with Silva Griffin. Here's the funny part about Laura Ingram, bro. If you look this up, first of all, she has like, I saw it today, she has like three million followers on Twitter. I was like, God damn. Laura Ingram uh, went to, she got her undergrad at Dartmouth, Ivy League, right? And then she got her uh, law degree from University of Virginia, which is very, like their law program is one of the best in the country. She's obviously quite smart. And then she just says shit. You're just like, I don't, it has to be a bit. It has to be a bit. It has to be a bit. Like it can't really be, I, you know. It, ha it ha can't be real. Uh, let's see. I just bought Citizen Protectors on your recommendation. Is the Second Amendment a good or useful characteristic of U.S. national identity? Um, Second Amendment, I don't know. Gun ownership, yes. And it didn't necessarily used to be that way, but if you read through and finish Citizen Protectors, what you'll see is there is a growing consensus across demographics, including African Americans and women, where gun ownership, not merely like I have one that I might need, but, but active use of it, being involved in NRA communities, being involved in shooting communities, um, and even gun rights organizations to an extent beyond just the NRA, uh, it's a big part of their identity. It's a forward part of their identity. Um, so the answer is for certain groups and growing in certain ways, the answer is yes. What do you think of old Big Dan Raphael being out at ESPN? Yeah, I'm told that that was a, uh, a, in the making. That there was a managerial switch a couple of years ago, and they were kind of dying for that to happen. But um, Not dying, but that there was in motions. And it just sort of finally happened. I would never, ever celebrate anyone losing their job. He was there for a long time. It's a shitty time to lose your job, but like if anyone's going to land on their feet, it's probably going to be him. So I hope he does. I would not wish anything against him. But um, I had heard that that was something that was, might have been happening before it happened. 
does Rumble beat all light heavyweights outside of Jones? Well, he lost to Cormier twice, so no. Uh, appreciate all the content. Thank you. Someone who's using my name says, why are leg locks so low percentage in MMA? Because people are bad at them. Top three men's pound for pound right now. Jones, Habib. Cejudo, mm. maybe? If you haven't seen it already, Tales from the Grind. Jorge Masvidal's Tales from the Grind. It shows him and Colby Covington in 2014 when they were roommates. And Jorge calls Colby his best friend at the time. I did see it. I did see it. Yeah. Um, all right. Stop with the stupid political disputes in the chat, please. Prime Franklin versus Whitaker. Better striker. Oh, Whitaker. Whitaker has his way with him. Has his way. All right. So there you have it. Uh, appreciate everybody who donated. Uh, what you call it? YouTube is going to take a bit of a cut here. So I see 341. They'll take probably 100 from that, which puts us at around 1,700 or so. So we're almost there. We're almost there at that two grand. Again, I will put a donation on top. But um, appreciate everyone who donates. I will put a link. I will put two links in the description box. One, for the syllabus, the best COVID reading list anywhere on any topic. I'm, I cannot... Please listen to me when I tell you it's the very best one that there is. And then secondly, I'll put a link to the Capital Area Food Bank. If you want to make a donation straight to them or you want to help out this way, you can do either. But I'll let you take a look at the organization and, and, uh, and whatnot. You can look them up on agencies that rate charities to see if you believe it's reputable. I did. They have a high mark. But still, just, just, just put everything on above board. Okay? Thank you guys so much for watching and reading and everything else. I really appreciate it. Videos coming your way even later tonight, probably, but certainly over the weekend. And until then, may all of, uh, oh no, I don't say that anymore. I say, stay frosty, bitches.